I think the number of people who are assembled here and the kind of people who are assembled here in the Rose Garden is indicative of the importance of the legislation that I am about to sign. I will sign into law in a few minutes. Perhaps the most important and far-reaching piece of trade legislation in the history of the United States. The Trade Agreements Act of 1979 received an overwhelming bipartisan mandate from both houses of the United States Congress. And this is an achievement of cooperation that's almost unprecedented between the executive branch of government, the Congress, business, labor, farmers, consumers, others interested in the economic strength of our country. This degree of unity and cooperation sets a prime example, a demonstration of what we can do during these troubled times when divisiveness is so often a part of the American scene. I'd like to pause here and make a very important observation. I know that everyone will agree with what I'm about to say. Special Trade Ambassador Robert Strauss did a masterful job throughout the Tokyo negotiations and throughout the equally important negotiations with the United States Congress, and I want to congratulate you. Modest as he is, and <laughs> I knew that if I didn't make that comment, it might go unmade. <laughs> I would like to say, as president, though, that the first time I went to an economic summit meeting in London, there was a general knowledge, not belief, that the Tokyo round that might lead to this momentous achievement had reached a dead end and that it was very unlikely that it, would, that it would ever be revived. I don't know of anyone else who could have done it except Bob Strauss. And the other leaders of the Western industrial nations have all expressed to me the same sentiments, that without Bob Strauss from the United States, it would not have been possible. I particularly want to praise the efforts of Chairman Russell Long and Abraham Rubikoff of Bill Roth and Bob Dole in the Senate, and of Chairman Al Ullman and Charlie Vanek, Bob Accountable, Bill Frenzel in the House, and many others, both Democrats and Republicans, who put aside partisanship in order to work harmoniously for the best interest of our nation. We truly live in an interdependent world. Our dependence on foreign oil is one example of this. But this is just part of the picture. Today, one-third of all the agricultural acreage in our country is used to produce food and fiber for people who live outside the United States. One out of seven of our manufacturing jobs in this country go to produce goods which are sold overseas. The strength of the dollar is determined to a major degree by how successful we are in developing new markets for American goods. This legislation, which I will sign in a few minutes, 
will open up vast new opportunities for American exports. The Trade Agreements Act of 1979 builds upon the foundation of one of the most highly publicized and well-known achievements of the Kennedy administration, the passage of similar legislation in 1962. This new legislation strengthens and solidifies America's position in the international trade community. It will revise the rules of international trade to create a fairer and more equitable and more open environment for world trade. This legislation will remove the barriers for fair trade and will reduce unfair trade practices, which sometimes cheat those and hamper those who are interested in improving the quality of the world economy. The trade reorganization proposal, which I have now presented to the Congress, to change the mechanism within the federal government of dealing with trade, will strengthen the ability of our own government to take advantage of these new opportunities described in the legislation on my left and will let us administer the provisions of this act more effectively. Our nation has the most productive economy which the world has ever known. Our agricultural abundance and our technological leadership are important sources of America's innate, unshakable strength. This legislation will help our manufactured goods and our agricultural products to become more fully competitive on the world market. This legislation will also help us to preserve peace and prosperity. Expanded international trade brings strength and growth to economies throughout the world. It enhances understanding. It opens up thousands of unpublicized avenues of consultation and cooperation and the sharing of responsibility, which quite often can help to alleviate political tensions and eliminate divisions that sometimes make international borders an obstacle rather than an avenue for cooperation. Peace and the expansion of human rights are natural byproducts of this lessening of tension and this increase of an acknowledged and productive interdependence. Increased American exports will mean new jobs for American workers, new markets for American business, more secure income for American farmers, a strengthened American dollar, and lower costs for American consumers. We all share the goal of a prosperous and secure America at peace with the world. This legislation provides us with an important milestone in preserving and promoting the economic strength and the political strength of the nation we all love so much. On behalf of the people of our country, I would like to thank those who assembled here for the roles that you have played in making this momentous achievement possible. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you.
Mr. President, distinguished guests in the Congress, other dear friends in the government. First, Mr. President, uh, for myself and for my two primary colleagues, uh, Ambassadors Wolf and McDonald, for all of our staffs out there and our other colleagues throughout the government, for the country itself, I want to say to you that what I have said on many occasions, that uh, this truly has been a classic example of how the system can work. And at the forefront of that was your willingness uh, to do the courageous, the tough, and take the tenacious positions that sometimes were less than popular. You took them in London, and you took them in Bonn, and more importantly, you took them all across America. And you never choked on the people who were representing you in the Congress and the executive branch. Republicans and Democrats alike never choked. And it's that for that reason that uh, we have this bill. And may I now say very quickly one additional thing. I know it, it's wrong, but to try to single out a few. I mentioned Ambassador McDonald, who was in Geneva, Ambassador Wolf, who was here. I see Julius Katz in the State Department, Dale Hathaway in the Agricultural Department. I see so many others. And for all of your staffs, uh, I always seem to have a habit of getting a good deal more credit than most people think I deserve. Not always more than I think I deserve. <laughs> <laughs> but I do know who made all of this possible for the president and for our country and indeed for the world. And it's all of you. And on a very personal basis, even though it's in this rather large group, I say to you, thank you each very much, and God bless us all and the country. Thank you. Mr. President, I feel that this occasion vindicates my judgment that occurred before you took the oath of office as president, I fought to see that the special trade representative would be a cabinet-level job. And without that, I don't believe you could have gotten Bob Strauss for the job. And without that, this effort might have failed. Uh, but we Bob, really have... Bob has already considered himself to be a job for cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he won't be offended by what you say. <laughs> <laughs> on this for a long time, and I think that after four years, uh, all those of us on the Finance Committee and the Ways and Means Committee are extremely proud. Uh, I have to commend every member, but in particular, I want to commend my dear friend and a great statesman, Abe Ribicoff, for the chairman of our trade subcommittee for the fine work he did on the Senate side, and same goes for all the members of the committee, but Senator Ribicoff worked especially hard on that, and a great deal of this success is due to him. Mr. President, I want to echo the commendation that you have made for the ambassador and all those that assisted him. Uh, also for uh, Charlie Vanek, chairman of our trade subcommittee, uh, uh, Russell Long, Abe Ribicoff, uh, Guy Vanderjack, uh, Bill Frenzel, all of the people who, uh, and, and of course Barbara Conable, uh, who participated in a major bipartisan effort. This indeed. Uh, should set an example uh, and sh should set the pace uh, for other things we're doing 
in areas that are vital to the future security of, uh, of America. I well remember back in the summer of 73, when the Ways and Means Committee met long hours, hard decisions, uh, drafting uh, a creative new piece of legislation that took a totally new approach to the whole uh, problem of trade. And we set up a procedure uh, during those hard months that, that laid out for the Congress a timetable without which we would not be here today. Uh, and so I think this whole effort from the very beginning to the end uh, should be studied as an example for other decisions that we can make in this government at a very critical time uh, when we're going to all have to begin working together better uh, than we have sometimes in the past. at this stage to rush in with a program to pump up the economy either with a new tax cut or with spending programs or by an easing of monetary restraints. Uh, there is not a sufficient body of consistent evidence to justify pushing the panic button on macroeconomic policies. There would be no credibility at home or abroad in our dedication to conquer inflation if we were to switch policies with each swing in the statistics. Traditional countercyclical economic policies do not, simply do not address the root causes of our current slowdown or of the current double-digit inflation. It's a very special kind. In fact, an expansionary policy now would aggravate inflationary pressures and divert resources needed to solve our productivity and energy supply problems, and as I said at the outset, lead us in the end to a worse recession. We must aggressively pursue the energy policies to which I have referred. We must reduce the gap between wages and unit labor costs. We must avoid being trapped into a wages-chasing uh, prices cycle, such as characterized the 75 to 77 period. Um, and we must protect the value of the dollar in international markets, for depreciation of the dollar feeds back into higher inflation domestically. One of the questions that was raised in the letter was uh, whether monetary policy can be used as a countercyclical device. Um, I think I have given the answer uh, in, in what I've said this morning. I would simply emphasize the point that uh, uh, the constraints imposed on 
the U.S. economy uh, by the uh, dollar uh, and on monetary policy by the dollar are great. Uh, they are greater than they have ever been. We are more tied into the international system than we have ever been. Relative interest rates are significant. Uh, the uh, Europeans have just raised the Lombard rate. Uh, that does impose very severe limitations on uh, the use of monetary policy, in my judgment, uh, as a means of uh, uh, dealing with the countercyclical problem. It does not mean that we have to be rigid, just as we cannot, of course, be rigid, uh, totally rigid in fiscal policy. But it does mean that we must be very prudent, and I'm sure that the Federal Reserve will indeed be very prudent in that regard. That, Mr. Chairman, uh, I could go on at some length, but that, I think, covers virtually all of the points that you have, uh, uh, that were in your letter. You did ask a question about our position on uh, mortgage revenue bonds and uh, uh, subsidies for mortgage interest rates. Uh, very briefly, uh, we favor uh, restricting the use of mortgage revenue bonds uh, to multifamily uh, housing for low-income people or for uh, mixed housing where at least 20 percent uh, is low income, and we do not uh, support any further uh, credits uh, for interest uh, payments in relation to housing at the present time. Thank you. Very real fear, from my point of view. Perhaps I can decide the past by describing the condition generally of that fear. In my part of the country, the price of oil and the supply of oil is related more directly to the question of survival. Very desperate. Let, let, let me describe it. In 1973-74, price of home heating oil was something like 18 cents a gallon. I think that 
point that I wanted to emphasize is that as a, as a nation globally, we cannot and must not validate, as I put it, the, the OPEC increases, the energy cost increases, by uh, money income increases because they won't be real. At the same time, now I think that leads me to the conclusion that uh, uh, macroeconomic measures, large tax cuts, uh, or uh, things of that sort will not be helpful. That does not mean that the burden should not be equally shared. Um, for example, the president is very much concerned about ensuring that ample supply of fuel oil be on hand for the winter, and uh, has ordered that very specific steps be taken that that be done. Secondly, the Energy Security Trust Fund, which courtesy of OPEC will have more money in it than we originally expected, will in part have to be devoted toward directing, uh, making up for the high cost of energy to specific groups, and quite possibly that includes groups such as those in your state, Senator, um, who simply can't make up for it. As a nation, we can. Uh, but that doesn't mean that by distributing the burden evenly, we can't uh, seek to take care of this. Uh, and that we cannot and must not be aware of regional differences. Uh, there are substantial regional differences. Uh, uh, one of the questions that I know I would get uh, if uh, Senator Regal were here, because he's from my home state, would be what's the impact uh, differential, differentially going to be on states like Michigan? Well, in a downturn, uh, states like Michigan go down much further because they're reliant on manufacturing, and therefore we're going to have more hardship in the city of Detroit and similar cities across the country. Doesn't mean you can't direct toward these places or in relation to the fuel oil problem toward Maine. But as a nation, we can't afford to do that. And global macroeconomic solutions, in my judgment, uh, which aggravate inflation uh, in order to help those particular problems are uncalled for. Um, and that, that there is sort of a, people are sort of smelling the fear 
others, and it's increasing within themselves. And, and really, I, 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 I raise it not to, uh, uh, to try to underscore the point that there will be distortions within our economy that will not be able to be solved by a macroeconomic uh, approach. I agree with the Secretary on that. But that I suspect that we may find that this fear, as you characterize, and I think accurately so, and I suspect maybe throughout other parts of the country, not just maybe the East and the Northeast, but where in our area, uh, is one that is going to have the impact, uh, the effect of deepening the recession and not uh, and beyond what we've been able to calculate. I mean, I just, I've just never felt anything like this before. I've never seen it like this before. I mean, with very, very, you know, um, uh, resilient people who in the past have said, you know, the price of gasoline has gone up and they said, well, I'll pay any price to get it. And, and uh, you know, it doesn't matter if it, it doesn't get it high enough. Well, all right, we're being ripped off. That kind of attitude has changed to, my God, how am I going to heat my home? People in small homes already sealing off parts of the small homes. Friends of mine are making $35,000 and $40,000 a year who have three children in a four-bedroom house are putting both boys in one bedroom and sealing off one bedroom. I mean, we're not talking to the boys in the bedroom. Well, I understand Senator Hart might have that problem, but they don't. But really, it is funny and that you talk about it, but when people do that, when people take actions like that, that is, I think, substantively different than the kind of actions I observed in 73 and 74, and it's a lot different than a gas station uh, line for two hours and people losing their tempers, and you know, I think it's a really a very different thing here. I don't know whether there's any answer, or even it's a question, but I get the that I'm not misunderstood in what I was trying to convey, Senator Bellman. I certainly uh, uh, do not wish to say that we must, under all circumstances, uh, not vary one inch uh, in either monetary or fiscal policy from what uh, we have been doing heretofore. Of course, uh, that would be the prudent course is to uh, uh, see where an adjustment is necessary, uh, given different circumstances. Secondly, that um, um, that having been said, the basic thrust of the policy, I, I say, I tried to say, uh, has to be the same, which is one of austerity, uh, and that that applies both to fiscal and monetary policy. Third, uh, that the limitations imposed on monetary policy are uh, by the fact that um, the dollar 
uh, is at issue. And the dollar is a tough inflationary factor, and we can't uh, possibly live with uh, a crisis uh, of the kind that we uh, faced last year uh, is, I think, a very real constraint. That does not mean uh, that a particular, uh, that there's nothing that could change in that over time. Now, that, that depends on circumstances, and the Fed uh, will have to consider that. I think it needs to be borne in mind that at the moment, at least, there is nothing in the cards that indicates uh, that the kinds of things that can be affected relatively quickly with uh, substantial changes in monetary policy uh, are what's causing this problem. That's really what's different about this, this kind of uh, situation that we're facing now. We're not, at this point, uh, haven't experienced any uh, severe downturn in housing. Uh, the forecasts are not for any severe downturn in housing. Um, certainly nothing like the kind of downturn we had in the mid-'70s. And um, um, it's not business spending that uh, uh, has been falling off at this point, um, which was, you know, low interest rates, people would go out and start investing more. Uh, business investment has held up rather well. Uh, so that I therefore think that um, uh, that has to be cranked into the equation. Uh, and and um, I, I want, just want to put it in perspective. I'm not saying that it has to be totally rigid, of course. Um, but I am saying that, if you, that a prescription, an economic policy which says, well, we'll just uh, hold fiscal policy firm and just go down on interest rates as much as we have to, uh, A, is not appropriate possibly to the circumstances that we're facing. Secondly, uh, would not do as much good. But third, um, may not be possible anyway, because I would say that if we tried that, and if we got a real into real difficulty financially in the international environment, we couldn't pursue that policy anyway. There is no way in which the United States could pursue that policy. Well, I think the president is likely to address himself to that question very specifically in the very foreseeable future. Um, uh, I think that the... Uh, uh, well, let me ask you this. Yeah. Let's take that up to the top. Let's imagine things are I, uh, I presume you refer to the to the windfall profits tax that that uh, is being proposed. In yes, I'm sure they uh, they would uh, like to have it. the The effort has been in connection with decontrol. The president, having made the decision to decontrol over a 28 month period. Uh, to find the middle ground, Senator, between, on the one hand, making available as much uh, of the additional revenues as possible, income as possible, to the oil industry to accelerate um, uh, production and accelerate exploration, what have you. And at the one, on the other hand, uh, capturing those windfalls, what we call windfalls, 
which are beyond even what was expected as of December of last year when we had the $16 price uh, uh, that we were talking about, and using it partly to deal with the implications of the present situation as described by Senator Muskie, uh, partly to, for mass transit, but most importantly, to fund some of the very, very expensive uh, projects that now need to be undertaken to uh, get on with the job of reducing our dependence and, and developing substitute fuels. Um, so it's a, it's a compromise. Uh, I feel somewhat comfortable about that, Senator, because in fact, uh, very few people are really able to show, and very few people have argued, that those revenues even if they were left with the oil industry at this point, would effectively lead to more output in the short or medium run. It's lack of capital has not been a substantial problem for the, uh, the industry. Profitability, perhaps, but not lack of capital. But these high prices... We have an enormous resource base, particularly in non-oil fuels, uh, that's right, in non-oil in, in non energy, we have a tremendous resource base. Some of that revenue, which in the short run is being generated and could not be used in this area, in the oil area in our judgment, can be used in the, to develop the non-oil energy resources. Uh, yes, but they, uh, they involve projects. Uh, in which I think it is clear the government will have to play a role. Not that the government will have to do it, but the government will have to play a role because there are elements of risk involved uh, that uh, uh, the government will have to recognize and do something about, and that costs money, and which, which companies will not be willing uh, to undertake. I think that if you look at the, let's put it this way, for each additional dollar of income, even after the windfall profits tax, uh, the... Uh, Companies are, uh, based on this last calculations I made, are going to keep 29 cents beyond a certain point, as compared to the 42. Uh, there are lots of additional dollars of income. So the reduction that has been brought about, uh, while it is 30% or maybe somewhat more now with these new prices, in what they otherwise would get is not that enormous. And the total income that they're getting is substantially more than they got before. It's a question of whether they should keep all of it. And they simply would not be able to use it as effectively uh, to increase uh, in the short run as I think we can put it to use for. That's right. All in favor of experimentation and trying new things. Heaven knows what we have been doing uh, for a number of years in this country has not worked as brilliantly. And I'm right with you to try to work it out. But, when we, but let's do it with our eyes open. Let's not do, do change for the sake of change and be in a worse mess. That's not. Senator, I just don't know.
I just don't know. I must say that uh, uh, with a 60% increase since last December, I would certainly, uh, which increases are excessive in my judgment, I certainly would hope not, but uh, I uh, cannot uh, adequately and accurately predict that. I would think the decision uh, by the Saudis to increase production, at least temporarily, would be a positive factor. I think the very high rise in prices and the impact it is having on consumption here and elsewhere will further improve the demand supply situation as well as the uh, uh, savings, mandatory and otherwise, that are being affected, as well the Tokyo Agreement. So all of that will have a mitigates against a further increase in prices, but I would not want to make a prediction. I just don't know. I must say that after the further experience of two and a half years of government service in Washington, I am um, less sanguine about the ability of government to substitute for the market than I was when I arrived here. That's true. Um, uh, and, and I do. Only, only took me six months. Well, that, uh, that shows that you are five times as smart as I am. So. No, I came with a uh, that, that's right. Well, I, I, I believed strongly in the market. I believe even more strongly in it now. I think the President's decision to decontrol uh, crude oil prices uh, is very sensitive. Projections that we released yesterday indicate, with regard to the latter question, the latter part of your question, Senator, that uh, we do not feel that way. In fact, uh, they amount to the prediction of a mild recession. Uh, you feel that if there had been some decontrol, that that would have been a more decontrol? Oh, I don't think that uh, anything could have avoided that situation in the face of uh, the kind of uh, price increases uh, that we have uh, experienced from OPEC, in my judgment. Would those price Well, I suppose it depends how long and what we would have done. The, the, the marketplace in and of itself, of uh, uh, the different price for oil in and of itself would not have done much. Yes, if at the time of uh, the closing of the Suez Canal, uh, we would have drawn the right conclusions and been clairvoyant and courageous enough to do so, if we'd done so in the 60s, the said, when I was here the first time in government in 1961, I worked uh, in the State Department, and I remember seeing memoranda from people down the line saying, uh, we're going to have an energy problem. One of the, but that was put off to one side, and I worried about something else, and so did everybody else. Uh, if we had done things, if we had let the market take over in those years and done something about it, about developing substitutes, yes, we would be in a very different situation now. But we just didn't. Now, in the last two or three years, it would make no difference, in my judgment. It takes longer than that. cost totally was 10%, and we're saving about 80% of that. 
So let's say on an average across industry, perhaps a six, per, six to seven percent reduction in the total cost of coil is potentially possible with this. Uh, another one that's not on this list, but let me just tell it to you.